Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. You know, this past January, uh, I had the great opportunity to spend a little time in Rome and Florence, uh, Italy, and I took along uh, one of my other children, an 18-year-old son who's an artist, and we had uh, so many great experiences. It was really wonderful, but there's one particular thing that really has stuck with me for these months, and I think will for a long time, and it's, it, it was at the Vatican, and I, and I realize some of you probably haven't been there, but just to, so it's hard to describe, but basically you go through all these rooms, it's just massive, it's overwhelming, and kind of the grand finale of it is the Sistine Chapel, but shortly before you get to, to the Sistine Chapel, there's this set of rooms that were all painted, they were papal apartments originally, and they were painted by the great high uh, Renaissance Italian painter named Raphael. And there's this one room in particular called the Stanza della Segnatura, which is, gets its name from the many judicial official documents were signed in that room by the Pope. And this room today is very famous still because it contains this amazing painting that you've probably seen before. It's called the School of Athens. And in this painting, you see you know, Plato and Aristotle and all these people standing and they're walking under these Italian arches and they're discussing things. It's a very famous painting. If we put it up there, I'm sure you'd know it. But it's great to go to this room and, and see that painting, but there's something else that happens when you go to the room itself in person. And then you realize in that room that that painting is not meant to be seen by itself, that that painting is part of a, a, a composition of all four walls together, that together represents something that is absolutely crucial and beautiful to the Christian vision of the world. And that is the, what we call truth, goodness, and beauty, the transcendentals. Because you see, what happens is if you were to stand where the papal desk sat, behind you, the paintings that Raphael did are all about the good or goodness, and they're represented by the virtues. And from that place, sitting at that table, you look, and the painting that's across this long room is of beauty. It's Mount Parnassus and all the muses and all the, the pictures of God-given imagination and beauty and creating. And then the two walls together, the famous painting of the School of Athens, and the wall opposite together are communicating the idea of truth. The School of Athens represents human wisdom and human reason, one of the ways that we come to understand things through wisdom. But the opposite wall is represented by theology. And the picture of the Trinity and all centered on the body of Christ on the table and saints from Old and New Testament together. And together, those two walls represent truth. And in fact, some scholars have observed that the, the, all the philosophers are walking towards this other wall the, in the famous scene as they're walking towards the ultimate truth. Now, that, that embodied room painted by Raphael is this amazing Christian vision of truth, goodness, and beauty. I'd like you to hold that thought there for a minute. And I want to take you to another room that I experienced this year, just probably less than a mile or a mile or so from here. Another room here in Louisville called a little music venue called Headliners. If any local people know, it's a little music venue. And my wife and I and my sons and his wife, we went to a show there a few months ago 
by a band called Pine Grove. Anybody, anybody heard of Pine Grove? Maybe not. Okay, a few people. It's hard to describe them. They're kind of a genre-bending thing. It's kind of like if Jason Isbell and Emo got mashed up together. The New Yorker calls them scrappy and sentimental, and it's true. And, and it, it was an amazing show, really an amazing show. I was by far the oldest person there. But we're, we're all there, 150 of us, belting out the lyrics to every song. This beautiful little, this, this little place, this little room that was very, very different. And, you know, Pine Grove is, is fronted by a very gifted artist. His name is Evan Stephen Hall. And he is singing these lyrics and, and writing amazing songs that are very intelligent. I mean, he's obviously a very bright guy. I just listen to him a lot. In fact, I'm a little scared about how much I listen to them because on my Apple 2022 review, I'm afraid it's going to show Pine Grove might have even been listened to more than Taylor Swift, who has, for me, I'm kind of surprised Mandy didn't say something about Taylor Swift because she's the one who got me into Taylor. But, you know, Taylor's been my number one listen for years, and I'm afraid Pine Grove might actually beat it. I'm but there, she does have an album coming out soon, so I can, I can catch up. <laughs> Midnight's, right? Can I get a witness? You ready? You get your clock set? Thank you. Well, Evan Stephen Hall is, again, very intelligent. I just heard a reference to George Saunders in one of his songs. He's clearly a reader, and he's a thinker, and the show was very powerful. But the effect was very different. Because... Pine Grove's music really reflects a very deep anxiety. He is a man who feels in his bones and feels in his soul the brokenness of the world and the longing for something more. In fact, in one of his songs called Respirate on the latest album, he describes going to therapy and just feeling disappointed with himself, disappointed with others. And, and he belts out at the bridge these, with all his heart. He says, no one is going to rescue us. No one cares if we spend our lives up. And, you know, through his voice and through his fingertips, with amazing verb, verb, he communicates really the experience of all of us humans when our idealistic hopes are disappointed, when we become disappointed with ourselves and our relationships and the world. And, and he's a creative, and he doesn't know what to do with that, and so he, he sings and he creates now, I realize this is a very odd juxtaposition. The Vatican and headliners, Raphael and Evan Stephen Hall. And it is an odd juxtaposition. But I think there's something there that connects very deeply these two rooms and something that's really important for us as people who are seeking to be ministers and spiritual leaders for others. Because you see, both Raphael, the painter, and Hall are artists who are using their God-given imaginations to envision the world in a certain way and to help us see the world in a certain way. Raphael painted those walls with a, a God-saturated Christian theological vision of truth, goodness, and beauty. And Pygrove is also painting a picture for us, but one of despair and one of confusion and disenchantment and longings unfulfilled. And, and, you know, they're both true. And in fact, in their own way, they are both helpful because they both actually help us see 
aspects of our human experience, but they offer a very different solution. Raphael points again to a divinely soaked world, and Pinegrove articulates an angst, and as the albums progressed, and in the last album, it was really clear at the concert, all he can kind of offer is a, is a very radical political socialism that he hopes will solve the world's problems that he feels. Now, why am I telling you this? What in the world does this have to do with conviction and imagination? Well, I think these two rooms really represent where we, as Jesus's community of believers in the world, where we find ourselves today. As Christians, we are in this world, but we've actually entered into another room inside of this world, the house of God. And in fact, when you go to Rome, one of the really cool kind of geographical metaphors of it, if you've been there, is that you're in Rome, you're in Italy, and then there's this area you literally go through a turnstile and you're into Vatican City, and you're actually in a different sovereign nation that's inside of Rome, that's inside of Italy. And I think that's a great picture for what we actually experience, even as Protestants, what we actually experience <laughs> as being in the world, but we're also inside of another world, the kingdom of God. We're in a new space within the world. And as we live in this room, we long for God to come and set the world to right, following the Lord's Prayer that Brandon just mentioned. At the heart of the Christian life is the Lord's Prayer, and it's saying what the realities that we experience now and that are heavenly make those true of the earth throughout entirety. And so we, leak, we, we seek to live well together inside this room, and we invite others to come in and see, to see this space in which we are working and laughing and playing and crying all in forward-looking hope. But this Christ room, again, is situated within and in fact is surrounded, I think, by Pine Grove's room, the room of the world, the world that is full of dis despair and disenchantment and confusion. And of course, we feel these things too because we're part of that world as well. And I think right now, in our culture, we are in a particularly intense season where many people who have been inside the church are now leaving Raphael's room for pine groves. Abuse, disappointment, wounds, social pressures are generating a strong wave of people's faith being deconstructed and destroyed. Maybe you can think of somebody that was baptized, a young person that was baptized just in the last year or two at your church, and now something's happened and they're gone. Maybe there's a fellow pastor or staff person at your church, maybe an old friend who was maybe with you here last year at the conference, and now they've left the faith because of struggles, maybe moral failure, but lack of faith in some way. Maybe your own kid. I'm older than a lot of you, but maybe your own kid who's 20 to 25 or someone in there is, is struggling with disenchantment and deconstruction. It's very common. Maybe you are. Maybe you're holding on by a thread tonight. What do we do? As we live in this complex space, these, this cross-pressured space, how do we live as Christ's kingdom community and how should we inhabit the world? Well, I think 
the value, the core value of conviction and imagination that we're talking about this week is something I love, and I think it's really beautiful and helpful in this particular place that we find ourselves. Harbor's value of conviction and imagination is defined this way. We anchor ourselves in the historic faith and also imagine fresh expressions of the kingdom for our particular cultural moment. Our leaders believe that theology, theological clarity gives us the conviction and the courage for imagination. I like that a lot. And as Brandon said, over the next couple of days, a number of speakers, a number of environments will have opportunity to think about this. And I was asked for tonight to try to think about how do, does Holy Scripture relate to this idea? In other words, if conviction and imagination is just a good idea, that's okay. We don't have to have a Bible verse for anything we say that's a good idea. But, but is there something in Scripture that could help us understand how these ideas, this juxtaposition of conviction and imagination hold together? And I think there is. And there are a lot of places we can look, but I want to spend just a few minutes with you tonight looking at the first four chapters of the Gospel of John. If you, I would love for you to, if you have a Bible, open it, especially if a physical Bible, because you can actually see more. But if you only have a digital Bible, that's fine too. But John chapters one to four, I just want to run through some things really quickly and ask, how do conviction and imagination maybe fit and lay on top of what God is saying to us? So starting in John chapter one, let me just read a few of these verses. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It goes on. Very famous verses, very famous words. And you know, this is really probably one of the highest points of all of Scripture. The, you may or may not know that throughout most of the church's history, the Gospels were considered the first fruits of the Scripture, the most important part. And then the Gospel of John was often called the first fruits of the first fruits. And it's because of passages like this. You cannot find a higher and a clearer Christology and a higher and clearer theology than this. And obviously, John 1 is picking up on Genesis. That's very clear in the beginning. But he changes it. It's like going to see Wicked or something. Um, in the sense that you go and see it and, and it's like you know the story and then you learn something that makes you see the story differently. Now the analogy breaks down because Wicked actually subverts the story of the Wizard of Oz. John's not subverting Genesis, but he is telling us something that we did not know before. However, actually, those first few verses, most Jewish people in Jesus' day, they could, they could understand this because there's a pretty strong tradition before Jesus' time, of talking about Torah, God's revealed will, and wisdom in kind of personified ways. So this isn't totally shocking to talk about this idea that there was something with God, Proverbs 8 speaks this way even, as that was, you know, you could speak of Torah itself in kind of embodied terms. So not quite what John's going to say, but close enough. So I think many people could have some sense that what John's saying, many Jewish people, would make sense. And what's also amazing is that many Greek people could also hear those verses 
and kind of makes sense as well because the word he uses there, we know, you know it's translated word, but you probably know it's the, the word logos. This was actually a really, really important word in Greek metaphysics and Greek philosophy as well. And logos basically meant the ordering principle of the world. It was the thing that was like the blueprint of the world and that, that determined what the shape of the world was. And so in many ways, and I always think of John, wherever he was when he wrote this, you know, in Ephesus or Patmos or whatever, the moment he thought, those are the lines I should begin this with. You know that moment when you get like in a sermon or a talk, you're like, that's how I'm going to say it. He must have thought, oh, that's perfect. In the beginning was the Logos, because Logos is like, it's perfect, because it can be understood by both Jewish people and by Greek people at the same time. And it's a powerful idea. And what, what the basic idea is that, that God's own self-expression is this Logos. That's all fine and good. But if you keep reading, he talks about light and light coming to the world. But once you get to verse 14... This is when things start to get crazy. Because he says, everything's fine up to this point. And this logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we're so familiar with that verse. It doesn't sound very shocking to us. But for any Jewish person, even one who understands that Torah could be spoken of in a kind of personified way, or for a Greek person who understands logos is this ordering principle of the world, to say that this logos actually became a human is shocking and crazy and offensive. And we're so used to hearing that word, the word became flesh, we don't think much about it. But I, 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 to, to give you a sense of maybe how this would have sounded, I always think of this interesting story that happened to someone I knew uh, who was using, um, he was using early computer software to try to do translation, kind of computer translation. And he put this verse, John 1.14, into German and then brought it back into English just to kind of see if it, if it could translate it. And the translation that came back was and the word became meat. <laughs> it's because the German word fleisch is, overlaps with flesh. How's that, how's that translation make you feel? <laughs> the word became meat. I think that kind of almost gross, weird feeling we have is probably closer to what any person in the first century, Jew or Greek, would have felt when they read, the word became flesh. What? This is crazy. And then John goes on, of course, to say, in our translation, say, dwelt among us, but many of you probably know, he uses a much more specific word there that could be translated as tabernacled among us. Now, if you keep going, look down at verse 16. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. There's so much in there as well, but what you need to realize, what's being said here, that John is contrasting this Logos who has become flesh, who is Jesus, with Moses in a way that clearly puts Jesus way above Moses. And, and this verse is often misunderstood because it, verse 17 could sound like the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
it'd be really easy to mistakenly think that the contrast here is between law and grace. But that's not at all what's going on in this verse. Law is not ever in the Bible pitted against grace and truth. Is there no grace and truth in the Old Testament? <laughs> is there no law? A trickier question. Is there no law in the New Testament? There is. It's called Hanamas to Christu, the law of Christ. The contrast here is not between grace and truth and law. The contrast is not between the nouns and the verbs. The difference between Jesus and Moses is not the difference between law versus grace and truth. It's between Moses was an instrument of it. It was given through, and Jesus is the incarnation of it. That is the difference. There's law and grace and truth and in Old and New Covenants always. The reality is the difference between Jesus and Moses is Moses was a willing instrument, well, sometimes willing, a semi-willing instrument. But Jesus is actually God incarnate. He is the one in the flesh that is the logos, the Torah of God himself in the flesh. That is a crazy claim. And friends, this is absolutely central to Christianity, and I'm afraid it's something we don't think or talk enough about, and that is the incarnation. I mean, we don't deny it, but how central is that to your understanding, your daily life even? This is absolutely foundational to the difference between Christianity and every other religion is this idea that God became a person. You have other religions where people die. You have other religions where people teach wisely, but this is the claim of Christianity that God has actually revealed himself in an actual person. As Hebrews 1 says it, the exact representation of God is in a person. We just started preaching through Luke at our church here in town, and I preached the Annunciation a couple weeks ago. And in research for it, I had no idea this, but for most of European history from about 560 till, depending on the country, up even till the 1700s, do you know what January 1st was, or the first of the year was not January 1st? It was the Feast of the Annunciation in March. That was the first day of the year for most of European history because of how central the incarnation was to the understanding of what Christianity was. It's that foundational. This is why John starts with this. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about with conviction and imagination? Well... This, friends, is the, the foundation, the epicenter, the nuclear core of the idea of conviction because God has revealed himself in a person who lived and taught and understood and taught us the truth. There is a truth. There is a reality that we must acknowledge or bring peril upon ourselves. As the old saying goes, gravity, not just a good idea, it's the law. So too, the exact representation of God in the person of Jesus who made the world means that we must submit to this most convictional foundational reality. Christianity is not just giving us more information, it's giving us a person we're not just given another prophet, we're given the incarnation of God himself. 
And his presence is now more than any previous revelation, even more than the temple, as we'll see. It is actually embodied in flesh in a person. So Jesus is now and forever the convictional foundation for how we understand what the world is and how to relate to God and who we are. And so we give ourselves to learning about him and to following him, to taking his yoke upon us. That's this core convictional, convictional reality that we're all about. And that is where we start as Christians, and that is foundational to what we're trying to do as our group of churches. We are people who are enthralled with and believing in and submitting to God revealed in Christ. Here's an interesting question. Okay, with that kind of beginning, how do you think the rest of the book's going to go? My good friend and colleague, Matthew Westerholm, uh, describes Leviticus as like nuclear reactor instruction manual level instructions, basically. Like if you, in other words, you might expect that after that kind of thing, that the rest of the Gospel of John is going to give us kind of Leviticus level and beyond instructions on how to worship and how to dress and how to be and all these kind of things. You'd expect that with that kind of foundation, what we're going to get now is like Torah 10, times 10. That's not what we get. If you keep reading, we're going to find that there's something else in addition to Logos that's emphasized, and it is spirit. Let your eyes just rest down to verse 32. 132, we learn following that the spirit descended from heaven like a dove and remained on him. That's our first hint that something else is going to happen. Again, we have to be quick. Skip ahead to chapter 2. We get the wedding at Cana. Then let your eyes rest upon 2.13. 2.13 to 25, we have this story about the temple. Really, really important part of Torah. This story about the temple that if you've ever noticed, we might say in Gospels kind of world, this is fronted. The, the story of Jesus in the temple is only in the synoptics at the end of their story. For John, he fronts this story. It's his first public event. And it's picking up on the tabernacle language of 114. And what happens, you know the story, he's in conflict about the temple and he's criticizing the temple. But have you ever noticed verse 22? It's so important. This is this, these narrative voiceovers that the gospel of John has. It's what I often call the John is the gospel for dummies in the sense that you get these sort of like narrative voiceovers in case you didn't get it. Here's what it, look at 122. After he says all these things, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. And what is it? That his, the temple is his body. Now it's confusing at this point. It's all, it's kind of unpacking. But this story of the temple is really, really important. The place where the spirit dwells. Now flip over or keep reading into chapter three. Nicodemus Another story, as one person cleverly put it, the original Nick at night. And in chapter three, we get a story that I don't think is very positive. You might think of Nicodemus as this sincere seeker. I don't think at all. I think he's coming to challenge Jesus. He doesn't believe in him, I don't think, at this point. He's going to be converted by the end, as if you know the story. But in this conflict 
with Nicodemus and they're going back and forth where Jesus is just like end running him at every point. Did you notice what is said about the spirit? Look at three, five, and six. You must be born of the flesh uh, and you must be born of, the, of what is above. And then verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born from a bent. And then 3.8, he continues to talk about the spirits mysteriously moving in ways that you can't predict or control like the wind. Okay? This is all building to something. And now finally, look at chapter 4. Another famous story. Totally unexpected story. We're familiar with it now, and so we think it's normal, but this is a totally weird story that Jesus... The Messiah, the one filled with the Spirit, is hanging out with a Samaritan woman, having a conversation with her. And those words of back and forth in chapter 4, verses 11 to 14, when they talk about living water, is a classic John double meaning. Living water means running water, but if you keep reading in John, you probably know this, you get to chapter 7, and he talks about living water. He's in the temple, and he's talking about living water flowing from him and through his disciples into the world. This is all part of the, the prophecy from Ezekiel that the end time is going to involve waters flowing out and the spirit flowing out. As Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me in chapter 7 and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the spirit, John tells us whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Okay, so there's something going on here. We've got a lot of temple stuff going on. You've got a lot of spirit stuff going on. And it all comes down to chapter 4, verses 19 to 24, when Jesus is in this discussion with the Samaritan woman about worship. And this was a big debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. They each had their own place that was a temple and they were political back and forth. They were trying to get each other in trouble with the Romans at various points about lots of conflict about where was the proper place to worship. And this becomes a topic of discussion for, for Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And notice what he says here, which is completely unexpected, that a time is coming and now is when one of the single most important things about Israel's whole life, the fact that God has given them a land and a place where the temple is built, where God meets with his people, that none of that matters anymore. That none of that matters. Because God himself is spirit, Jesus says, and because the incarnation has now occurred, here's the key, the temple is no longer a place but a person. That is the key. This is where John's going. We don't have time to unpack it all. But this is John. This is a major part of John's whole gospel is because of the incarnation that he started with, the place where God meets with humanity, the temple is no longer a place. It is a person. And so the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple as the place of true worship has been transformed into worshiping anywhere and anytime by God's own spirit centered on the person of Jesus, not a place. <laughs> now that is crazy. Do you realize that in ancient religions, Judaism or Israel was already crazy 
because they didn't have any idols. That was already completely weird. Like, how can you have a religion with no idol? That's great. You have to have something, some image of a God that does something that you can bow down to. You go into the temple of Jewish people, if you could, and there's nothing there. First of all, that's weird. And now Christianity takes it even farther and says, there's not even a temple. It's a person who is God himself is the place and the person that we worship. Be like if you're taking a trip down to Orlando and you're going to Disney World, which we've done a lot and we like, and then once you get there, you don't care anymore about the rest stop in Valdosta, Georgia with the billboard and you don't sit there and you don't drive back and just look at it. You enter into the, what I like to call the magic kingdom of God <laughs> once you get there. And this is what Jesus is saying. The whole story has been leading up to this point where all that doesn't matter anymore. It's not that it was bad. God was meeting with his people. But because of the incarnation, now we worship not in a place, but a person. And so follow the sequence. God's presence is now in a person, not a place. That person, if you keep reading in John, has ascended from the earth and he has sent the Spirit, and now the Spirit gathers Christ's people into a community, and together now that people is the presence of God on earth. Do you understand the logic? Just read John. That's the point. God is now in a person, not a place. That person has ascended. He has sent the third person of the Trinity. And now as we gather who are filled with the Spirit, we are the presence of God in the world. And this is if you read the other parts of the New Testament, this is what Matthew 18 is talking about. This passage that we unfortunately have boiled down just very too reductionistic to a church discipline passage. That is like only tertiarily the point of that passage. The point of Matthew 18 is that, do you want to know where the place of authority in heaven and in earth, where things are bound and loosened in heaven and earth now, it's not in the Sanhedrin, it's not in the temple, it's actually in the Christ community gathered together. That's the same theology as this. Do you see that? Or how about Ephesians chapter 2? This is where Paul gets it, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. We are God's house with the apostles and prophets as the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And it says, we are being joined together that is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is the same theology in 1 Peter 2. He says, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice. Hear all that temple language? Acceptable to God through Jesus. This is all about the temple. So, what does that have to do with conviction and imagination? Well, here's what this means. Because we no longer go to a particular place to worship, again, with this sort of Leviticus-level set rules and liturgies, because of that, Christianity, Christianity happily and imaginatively goes into the world and into culture and into places, and, and, and manifests itself beautifully and imaginatively in all those places. Do you see where I'm going? Yeah. That because of this 
incredible, unexpected, radical transformation of how God is present in the world, now through the incarnation and then by the Spirit in his people, as Christianity goes throughout the world, it's not one culture. It's not one, it's not one way of looking in terms of clothing or even worship styles. Unlike any other religion, Christianity inhabits the world not, again, as a particular culture, again, not particular clothing, not particular haircuts, not particular customs or architectural styles necessarily, but really more as a philosophy. That is a true philosophy of the world because it's rooted in the incarnation of God himself. You see, the genius of Orthodox Christianity is that it doesn't look like one thing. Compared to the Hebrew scriptures and Israel's practices, and let alone all other ancient religions, Christianity is shockingly flexible and ambiguous and open in the way it manifests itself. And by the power and the leading of the Spirit, Christianity is always missional in this sense. It's imaginatively and creatively entering into any room in the world and using its colors and smells and shapes to manifest the truth. I just watched a little YouTube video a couple days ago on the, on the mimic octopus. It can change its shape and color and movements to actually look like 15 different predators. It's amazing. The analogy breaks down a little bit. We're not just doing that. But do you understand the idea? This is kind of... The, we can look like just like the world and, and beat them at their own game. That's not the point. The point is, we, let me give you a better illustration. Scratch that from the record. In the room of the world that God has called us to inhabit as Christ's kingdom community, we're driven by a set of beliefs, but again, that works its way out with amazing freedom and creativity. And here's this great illustration from a book some of you have maybe read called The Worship Pastor by Zach Hicks. And again, my friend Matthew Westerholm turned me on to this. And I, a little, I want to expand the analogy a little bit beyond Zach, what Zach does even. But here's the question. He uses this from the world of fine wine. What makes the wide variety of wines different from each other. Or we could say the same thing about coffee, you know, an Ethiopian or a Sumatran or Papua New Guinea coffee. What makes the difference? Well, the, the, the idea is this French word terroir, which is from the word terra, or so it's T-E-R-R-O-I-R. -R -R. And what that word means, it's kind of mysterious in the world of wine, but what it means is like this combination of climate and soil and terrain and how the soil has been worked over tradition. And here's the point, that you could plant a grapevine, the same grapevine in different places. And while genetically it would remain the same plant, based on the terroir, the, the color, the taste, the smell, the volume of and the flavor of the grapes and the wine produced is going to vary. Isn't that, a great, isn't that a great understanding of how God, because of the incarnation of the Spirit, works in the world? A great analogy for missions and church in the world. Orthodox Christianity is rooted in the conviction of Jesus, who he is, but it's going to look and smell and taste and feel different in the million different places that it's planted. And there's actually even more glory to God in that. 
because of the diversity and the beauty that God is all in all that it's the same genetic reality of the incarnated God who is the center of our conviction, but the way it works out is so beautiful. The fructifying of the world is so diverse and beautiful and overabundant, just like in Genesis. And so it's wonderful to observe that the logos, the conviction, and the imagination, the spirit, are not in competition with each other, but they work together to transform the world. And this is the beauty and the power and the unpredictability of Christianity. That's how it went from being this tiny little sect on the far end of the Roman Empire to within just a few hundred years being the world religion of the West. And my assignment for tonight was just to help us think a little bit about this conviction imagination. And I hope that kind of thinking about Logos and Spirit might give you some handles to think about that. But to, to wrap this up tonight, I want to just give you, and, and, and other speakers are going to, I'm sure, explore applications of this and, and more than I can talk about. But I just want to give you two thoughts, a little direction from me about what this might mean if we sort of adopt this conviction imagination, if we embrace both Logos and Spirit in our ministries. And just two of many thoughts we could have. First, I want to encourage you to preach a lot and teach a lot and disciple a lot from the Gospels. <laughs> now, it's not just because for job security reasons for me, because I'm a Gospel scholar, but it's actually, and I know I've had many of you as students, and you know what I'm about to say here, but throughout the history of the church, even though it's not been as strong in our sub-tradition, throughout most of the church's history and still today, the Gospels have been the most central part of what Christianity is. Why? Because of this crucial difference. Christianity is not, again, about just a new set or a different set of ideas. It is about the incarnation of God as a person. And the church has always understood this. We have not been great about this in the Reformation tradition. In the sense that because Christianity is about the incarnation of God in a person. The most important thing we need to know are the stories about what he said and did and taught and how he was. He's not just another prophet who tells us even newer information or something. He is that. He is also, though, the very presence of God. So what we need is to be looking at what he said and what he did. And thankfully, most of the New Testament gives us that. <laughs> the first four books give us that. They give us this picture and that's why they've always stood at the head of the New Testament canon and why they've always been the dominant part. And so this is why at Sojourn East, Kevin and I have determined over the years that the gospels are going to be the central part of what we're teaching. That we're going to keep coming back to the gospels. Every, we're, we do lots of different things and we intersperse other series within when we're going through a gospel. But that's going to be our bread and butter over you know, decades, we hope, is keep bringing us back to the centrality of the incarnate Son of God who teaches us how to inhabit the world. So channeling some Ian McGilchrist, if you know anything about neurology and all that, the, what the Gospels do for us and other narratives of the Bible, but they really fire both sides, both hemispheres of our brain, both analytical and analogical, both diagnostic and figural. There's nothing like a story and these central Christian stories to engage our whole person, not just our ability to analyze theology, but our ability to figure the world and understand the world. So I invite you 
to consider making the Gospels as central to pursuing conviction and imagination. The second one, I'd like to encourage you to define yourself and your localized church community not by what you're defending, not by what you're protecting, but what you're beautifully and imaginatively building. Be builders of beautiful things. This is what the Spirit is doing. The evangelical and reformedist tradition that historically has been big on conviction, as Brandon was saying, not so much on imagination. Well, if you live that way, then it's easy to get defensive. After all, this is a good, this is a good moment in, the, in American evangelicalism. 25 years or so into this kind of revived church planning movement, Acts 29, Sojourn, Harbor. You know, when those came into being, it's because they felt a need to more imaginatively engage culture, and that was really great. Well, guess what? It's going to be really easy for those of you who have been part of that to become the traditional ones and then start defending the ways that you've, you've done church. So easy to do that. And guess what? The young whippersnappers are coming right after you. I'm about to quote it. I could channel some Taylor Swift here. Early, early, early deeper catalog song here. I could channel here for you, but I'll just let you figure that out. But here's the beauty of it. Convictional orthodoxy gives us the freedom to be creative and imaginative. Centered in the logos, we can follow the spirit. Settled convictions give freedom to be imaginative and, and non-anxious in the way we engage our neighbors and our city and our country and our world. The vision that pulsates through our churches should be a constructive and imaginative one of a non-anxious presence, not defending or protecting any political view, right or left, but with a freedom that comes from a mature confidence that we can engage the world out of beautiful conviction and therefore we can engage it with love. So beautiful, so free. I want you to find that freedom. One of the things I talk about a lot is this acronym, bit by bit. That we should be people who build beautiful things, invite people into kingdom life, and tell a better story. And you just do that over and over. Build beautiful things, build beautiful ministries, build beautiful ways of inhabiting the world, invite people into kingdom life, and tell a better story of the true story of the world. So when you find yourself getting worked up and spun up by anxiety about all number of things, church conflicts within or without, issues on the left or the right, take a deep breath. And remember to reconcentrate your efforts on the way that God creatively and imaginally is again fructifying the world, bringing life. So I, just start, I started by describing Raphael's room as the true vision of God's world that we inhabit. And again, this world is surrounded by a, a world of brokenness and despair, and that's true. There's also something bigger going on. Surrounding this outer world of despair is actually the room of the world in which the logos has entered and the spirit now dwells with joy and vitality and transforming power. And the whole world is our room and we are called to live as Christ's kingdom community in the room of the world where the logos is incarnate and the spirit is at work. 
And we're invited to fulfill this calling as leaders of God's people imaginatively, creatively, in our local environments, tending our own gardens, cultivating our local fields with with beauty and creativity, with logos and spirit, with conviction and imagination. Your souls, friends, long for a cause and the people in your community long for a meaningful purpose that is bigger than defending America, or whether progressively or, or conservatively. We long for a greater purpose of being a kingdom of priests. Love that image. A kingdom of priests who bless the world with conviction and imagination. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.